Now, I don't usually point out things in congregation, but I want you all to, before you leave here today, notice the glow that's coming around Rocky. No, I mean, I mean the socks. Like he's walking down a runway. <laughs> I didn't tell you to model them. <laughs> but I will say this that's the first time since I've known him he's been bright. <laughs> Isn't it fun having. Having fun in God's church. <laughs> the most happy people on the face of the earth ought to be with inside the church. That's where people can celebrate. This morning, I want to ask you, if you will, to turn to chapters 5 and 6. And no, we're not going to read the whole chapters, just about three-quarters of both of them. But one of my favorite stories in the Bible has always been Joshua leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And having to face Jericho. Now, y'all know what Jericho was? It's, it's a picture of how every child of God has come out of Egypt, which pictures a lost person coming out of a lost situation, and how we should not be content with living in the wilderness. That's a picture of the carnal Christian. Instead, we should cross over to the land that God's got for us. This title of this message this morning is How You Can Have Victory in Jesus. And this is, again, one of my favorite stories. I know I've said that about other stories, but this really is. But it's the Christian, the victorious Christian life. Now, let me preface this a little bit. My generation grew up with, re, with the reality of something called the Berlin Wall. Everybody knows what that is, right? Or what it was. After the surrender of Germany in 1945, Berlin was divided into two sections. East Berlin was supervised by the Soviet Union, and West, Ber West Germany excuse me, uh, was under the uh, control of the British and the American allies. In 1961, the Soviets built a wall 96 miles long to prevent East Germans from defecting to the West. Over the next 25 years, more than 5,000 East Germans escaped to freedom, and almost 200 others were killed trying to escape. But in one of the most pivotal points in history, President Ronald Reagan gave a speech at Brandenburg Gate on June 12, 1982, in which he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now, it didn't happen right away. But on November 9, 1989, the Berlin Wall was torn down. For the first time in, the, in a quarter of a century, families and friends on both sides of Berlin could be together. If you come to understand the meaning of the spiritual stronghold in this message today, then you'll be able to look the devil in the eye and say, Mr. Lucifer, tear down that wall that you built in my life. If you will, turn with me to Joshua chapter 5, and then also hold Joshua chapter 6. We're going to read a little bit out of both of them, and just hang on there for just a moment, and we will get there. Joshua, uh, Joshua chapter 5, 
really verses 13 through 15, and then skip over to Joshua chapter 6, 1 through 5. So beginning in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, would you stand with me as we read these words together, as we honor God's Word. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? So he said, No, but, I, but as commander of the, of the army of the Lord I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander said, Take off, uh, of the Lord's army said, Take off your sandals, off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And then turning to uh, Jericho, uh, the uh, sixth chapter, beginning in verse 1, we read these words. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given you Jericho in your hand, its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear even seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a loud, a long, loud blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the shout of the trumpet, that all the people will shout with a great joy. Then the wall of the city will fall down, and the people shall go up, every, one, every man straight before him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer real quick. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this passage we just read. And, Lord, it's been a story since many have heard it from childhood and just many different ways. But, Lord, just today, just show us the spiritualness you have for this story and what you're speaking to us about. How can this apply in the year 2018? And, Lord, it happened so many years ago. Lord, what does this possibly have to say with us? And, Lord, open our eyes that we may see what you're truly saying to us through this passage. All these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we've still got a little bit more reading to do there, so if you want to hold your finger on that place, we'll get back there in a minute. But, in fact, let's just skip down to verse 15 of chapter 6 right now. Let's just do that at the same time. You don't have to stand back up. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early and about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day, they, they, only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to, to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that sent, we sent. And then drop down to verse 19, and it'll be the last one we read. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Now, that's the story in essence of Jericho, the battle of Jericho. But let me clarify something. I know you've probably heard the song, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho. Good old southern gospel song. But that's a wrong song. Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. God did. Joshua didn't do anything. 
All Joshua did is what God told him. But that's a very good lesson we can learn. In fact, Joshua 6, uh, the, we just read Joshua 6, 15 and 6, 17. And on the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Now keep that little thought in mind because that becomes a very important part of it. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 19, we read these words. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are, are sacred to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. Now, I know I don't have to tell you, but you know what happens on the next episode of this story about a man named Achan. And Achan decided with all this. Now, remember, to the victor goes the spoils. Whoever wins the war gets the benefits. And that was the common knowledge back then. But in this specific time, God had said, don't take it. It belongs to me. It goes back to the treasury of the church. Now, what does that possibly have to do with us? We'll see that in just a minute. But let's go back to that first part we read. For Joshua was out near Jericho. The Bible said that Jericho had been shut up because they were afraid of all these Israelites coming, didn't know what was going to take place. And as he was out one night walking, and I just think that probably being the commander of the army, he was thinking about, okay, how are we going to attack this place? What are we going to do? And all these kind of things. Do we have enough, uh, uh, you know, the, as he looked at Jer Jericho in the distance, he was beginning to plan out his battle structure. He must have been thinking about how many ladders we're going to need to get over those walls because these were big walls. History tells us they were at least 30 feet wide because two, carriages, uh, two uh, chariots could run along the top of them side by side. So that's a big wall. How are you going to get over this? This was the most fortified city at this day and age in the world. It was heavily fortified. How are you going to conquer this? And so I would imagine old Joshua was out thinking, perhaps even praying, saying prayers as he walked along. You know, Lord, how are we going to accomplish this? Tell us what to do. And all of a sudden, he came upon a person. He was standing there in full armor, and he had his sword drawn. And Joshua asked the right question. Are you for us or against us? I think that would be a wise thing to ask right then. And here's what he said. Neither. He replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. Then Joshua, the Bible tells us, fell on his face before this person, before this being. He doesn't know who this is, but he began to fall on his face in worship almost. Number one, the greatest thing we can do is to fall on our face and surrender to Jesus. If you haven't done that yet, you don't know what blessings you're missing. On the night again before the battle, Joshua's out walking around. Maybe he couldn't sleep. I don't know. He just, he just was so tense about what was fixing to take place the next day. I don't know what he was doing. It doesn't tell us. But he was out walking around. And all of a sudden, here's this mighty soldier with his sword drawn. And oh, Joshua, who are you for? Are you on our side or are you on their side? And he says, I'm neither. I'm for the commander of the Lord's army. Now, 
What does that tell us? He identifies himself as the captain of the Lord's army. Just who was this soldier? Some people think it might have been one of the mighty angels, Michael or Gabriel, one like that. But I don't think it was. Now, I'm not a Bible scholar, so keep that in mind. But I don't think it was because I think it was one of the rare occasions in the Old Testament that Jesus Christ made a pre-incarnate visit. And let me show you why I think that. The evidence for this belief comes from two clues. First of all, notice Joshua's reaction. When Joshua realized who was before him, he fell down on his face and worshipped. Throughout the Bible, angels never allowed themselves to be worshipped. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, we, when the Apostle Paul was escorted around heaven as he had been shown around heaven, he was so overwhelmed that he fell down and began to worship an angel. The angel had a celestial fit and said, Don't worship me, worship God. Now, that's the angel's job to do. So if this had been an angel, he was allowed to be worshipped. And I don't think that took place. Now, that's my, just my opinion, so you feel free to disagree. You have a right to be wrong, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But he said, the angel said, don't worship me, worship God. But this commander accepts Joshua's worship. Who's the only one that could accept worship in the God, Lord's army? The commander-in-chief of the Lord's army. We call him Jesus Christ. I believe that's who it was. I believe it was one of those pre-incarnate visits that he made. The second divine clue is seen in what the commander said. He told Joshua, take off your shoes because he was standing on holy ground. Does those words sound familiar to you somewhere in the Bible? The last time we read those words was when God spoke them to Moses in the burning bush. And God himself told Moses, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. That's why I think this was Jesus. I don't know what kind of form he had. It's, it doesn't tell us. But I think Joshua realized who it was, and he knew him immediately. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar saw a fourth man in the furnace. He described him as appearing as the Son of God. Jesus is indeed the commander of the armies of the Lord. We know that. When Peter drew his sword... In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told him to put it away. And then Jesus said these words, Matthew 26, 53. Don't you know I could command 12 legions of angels to rescue me? That was Jesus' words from the cross, right before the cross. He knew if he wanted to be rescued, he could be rescued. It wasn't a question about it. What's the personal lesson here? First of all, sometimes we need to fall on our face before God. But secondly, and this one applies to us even more so, your battles are always won in your prayer times. This leads to the lesson that each one of us should have. Your battles are won in prayer. When Joshua fell on his face before Jesus, the Lord told him that the battle was already won. Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. 
All he did was show up for it. God had already won it. Joshua 6, 2, the commander says, See, I have delivered, past tense, Jericho into your hands. This is the night before they even went there. Who do you think is in control of this situation? God is. And God's got his army in case it's needed, but he wasn't going to need it. Have you ever discovered that your battles are fought and won in prayer? I believe with all of my being that the most neglected thing in the Christian life is prayer. And yet prayer is the most important tool or the most powerful tool, or both for that matter, in our weapons that we have. We are known as Baptists, the people of a book, the book. We believe the Bible. Do you realize that book says from cover to cover that we're to be praying people? Don't call yourself a soldier of the Lord if you're not on your knees praying because you're missing the point of it. Oh, yeah, when something happens to us, when one of us gets sick, and when we go in the hospital, we begin to pray pretty quick then. We know we had to pray then. But I'm talking about every day of the week. Do you spend time in prayer? Do you spend time going to God, just you and Him? If you don't have it, I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going to keep encouraging you. Find you sometime. It can be early morning. That's when I like to do it. It can be late at night. It can be in between. It can be sitting at your desk if your boss don't mind. Just have a time when you have a little prayer time, a prayer meeting with Jesus. Who would you rather show up? I mean, here he is. Just take five minutes. It doesn't have to be a 35-minute prayer. Just stop and thank God for the blessings you've got in your life. Thank him for how he's brought you along. I mean, look at us. I mean, some of you, well, I better not say that. <laughs> some of you need a lot of prayer. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But anyway. Have you discovered that the battles are fought and won in prayer? There's a great example of this in Exodus chapter 17. This is when Moses was still leading the Israelites, leading them on the journey, and Joshua was his captain at this time, let's call it that. They were involved in a battle against the Amalekites in the valley of Rephidim. Moses was on the mountaintop watching the battle down below, when Moses lifted his hands in prayer, Joshua and the Israelites prevailed. But when his arms began to get tired, he lowered his arms. The Amalekites began to win. It didn't take old jo oh, uh, Moses long to figure out that he needs to keep his hands up and stay in prayer, right? So he lifted his hands in prayer, and when he got tired, Aaron and Hur, that's Ben Hur's little brother. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> Aaron and Hur stood beside him, and they lifted his arms up. And as long as his arms were lifted up and he's in prayer, the Israelites were winning. Now, what does that tell you? What's that little lesson for us? We should be praying for each other, lifting them up. No matter what it is, we have a prayer list that comes out every week. We have people every week that... Uh, mentioned, hey, I need prayer for my, my family, my brother, my sister, my parents, whatever it may be, sickness or 
uh, you know, so much flu is going around here. We need to pray for him. In fact, Brother Robert's not here this morning because he had to take his daughter, wasn't it? His daughter to the hospital. His son just spent two weeks in the hospital about a week or so ago, and now he had to take his daughter. Now, I don't know exactly what's going on, but, but we need to be praying for him, prayer for him. And so don't forget that. Sometimes we say, well, I'll pray for you, and we never remember it. Folks, we need to take prayer seriously. As you see, prayer changes things in our lives. Let's go on a little farther. After a few minutes, Moses finally figured out that he had better keep praying. So he lifted his hands in prayer. And when he got tired, they would come over and hold his arms up for him. As a result, it says in the King James Version, Joshua discomfited the Amalekites in the valley of Rephidim. Now, I don't know what that means exactly, discomfited. But in Texas jargon, it means Joshua beat the daily light out of them. I mean, he's creamed them. He gave them an old Texas whooping. But the battle wasn't taking place in the valley it was actually taking place upon that mountain where God and Moses were. That's where it was taking place. And as long as Moses was praying to God, God deliver us, God was answering. But when he quit praying, it stopped. Now think about that in your own life. How many times do you need prayer on a daily basis? I don't know about you, but... They could probably do it every minute of every day of every hour for me, and it still wouldn't be enough. But God wants us to be in prayer and lift up his name in things. The great British expert on prayer, A.T. Peterson, wrote many years ago, The Lord wants his people flat on their faces before they attempt to meet the great crisis of life. That's good. I didn't write that, so I can't take credit for me. The Lord wants his people flat on their faces before they attempt to meet the great crises of life. The second thing we see, follow your commander's orders exactly. Now, I've never been in the military. I've shared that with you. I know we've got a bunch of military people, and probably everybody in this room is just out besides me. <clears throat> but I know one thing, just from watching TV and these shows on military, when a commanding officer says do something, you better do it. I think that's pretty accurate, isn't it? I mean, just that's, you don't have a question. Well, I don't know. Let me think about this a little bit. Folks, when our commander, armor, our commander of the army says, do something, we need to be on our faces saying, what do you want me to do? Who can forget the inspiring speech by William Wallace to the Scottish rebels before the battle Sterling, at Sterling Bridge where he said, I fight and you may die. Run, and you may live, at least for a while. But today you must tell your enemies that we may you, that ye may take our lives, but yet, yea, we'll never take our freedom. Isn't that neat? Henry V said to the English troops before the Battle of St. Crispin's Day, when he called them, We few... We happy few, we band of brothers. <clears throat> Doesn't that inspire you to go out and join the army? No. <laughs> I figured I'd get that answer. 
How about the, stir, the soul-stirring speech of General George S. Patton to the Third Army as they prepared for Operation Overload, in which he said, Every man is scared in his first battle. If he says he isn't, he's a liar. The real hero is the man who fights even though he is scared. The point is, go back with me in your mind at the scene of Joshua's camp. Joshua had some gung-ho speech ready, I'm sure, ready to inspire those troops the next morning. But after meeting that commander of the Lord that night, <clears throat> all of his plans changed. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were armed to the teeth, ready to attack, itching to attack. For seven days they walked around the city. We hadn't done anything yet. What are we going to do? And then they began to listen. They waited on Joshua's battle plan. Now, here's Joshua's plan. Now, as most of you are military, you just think about this for a minute. Then Joshua says, well, guys, tomorrow we're going to march to Jericho. Then we're going to march around it in silence. Can't you imagine those sergeants and lieutenants and whatever else in the army? Do what? Are you kidding me? He says, yep, we're going to march around the city one time. Then what are we going to do? We're going to go back to camp. Do what? What are we going to do tomorrow? We're going to march around the city one time. And then go back to camp, right? Yeah, that's right. For seven days they did that. The next day we're going to do the same thing. The next and the next and the next. Can't you just hear those generals saying, Excuse me, sir, but uh, is that all we're going to do? Just march around the city? And Joshua says, no. Well, actually, there is something we're going to do. On the seventh day, we're going to walk around the city of Jericho seven times. And then we're going to blow our trumpets and shout. That's our battle plan. Yeah, right. Sure it is. But thankfully, by this time, the army of Israel had learned the lesson to obey God exactly. You ever wonder why God took them 40 years to get where they were? He was teaching them a lesson to get ready for what's coming. Otherwise, they'd have been, this is crazy. This doesn't make sense. They'd probably broke ranks and ran. Get me out of here. But they had learned to wait on God because they'd watched God do miracles in their lives. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have watched God do miracles in your life? So when God tells us to do something that doesn't make sense, what's the first thing we do? That doesn't make any sense, God. Isn't it? I know it is for me most of the time. That doesn't make sense. But what God's saying is, I want you to learn to trust me totally. Thankfully, by this time, the Israel army had learned the lesson to obey God exactly. So they walked around the city each day carrying the ark of God and teaching them humility. They thought of themselves as the invincible army of God. And he had them walk around that city actually 13 times if you count them up. The troops of Jericho were probably laughing at them. Look at them. What are they doing? They're bringing their horns to a battle. But, oh, did they not know what was fixing to transpire. They're cowards. They're just a bunch of cowards. How tempting it would have been for one of those soldiers to draw back his bow and see some old guy, pretty good-sized target, sitting on top of that wall, and he'd pull back and pew, tumble him off that wall. 
I imagine a bunch of them thought about it several times. But that wasn't God's plan. Had they have done that, they would have lost the battle, I'm convinced. God was teaching them stamina and patience. Gilgal was about an hour's distance away. And according to archaeological ruins, it would have taken about two hours for them to march to the city of Gilgal. So that was four hours marching each day. Then on the seventh day, it would have taken 14 hours just to walk around the city. That would have been an exhausting day by the time the walls fell down. What would have happened if the army had rebelled after three days? They'd have lost the battle. What happens when we rebel? We lose the battle many times. Here's the lesson we need to learn. God, only Obey God's army, His Word, even if it doesn't make sense. You ever wonder why God commands us to do things in a certain way? In the 1980s, now I'm old enough to remember this, barely, but I remember it. 1980s, there was a series of movies called The Karate Kid. Y'all remember that? All right. You're as old as I am, aren't you? <laughs> well, some of you. Daniel, the young man's name in the movie, wanted to learn karate, and his teacher, Mr. Miyagi, had him to do things like paint the fence. Daniel kept saying, Mr. Miyagi, I don't want to paint fences. I want to learn karate. I want to learn what it means to do the karate moves. Mr. Miyagi would just smile and say, you paint fence. It didn't make any sense to him at the time. But later, Daniel found out, he came to understand that the motion and the muscles that he used in painting that fence were the exact motions and movements he used in karate. I think God does the same for us many times. He tells us to do things that sometimes just don't make sense. Let me give you an example. It doesn't make sense when God says that if you as a child of God... You're supposed to give 10% of your income to the church. I didn't say that. God did. So keep, don't blame me for that. Now, think about that. That doesn't make sense. 10% of your income, and God said you'll be able to live better on the remaining 90% than you did on the 100%. Do what? Where's the sense in that? It doesn't make sense when God tells us in James chapter 1, count it all joy when you face various trials and temptations. What? I'm supposed to be joy when I come down with the flu next week? I'm supposed to have fun about it? That doesn't make sense, right? But let me remind you, when God sends doesn't make sense, it's because we're not smart enough to understand God's sense. The third thing we see real quickly, focus on demolishing your personal strongholds. On the seventh day, they marched seven times around Jericho with the priest blowing the ram's horn called a shofar. The shofar was not a battle trumpet. It was called it was an instrument used to call them to worship. Now, here they are, fixing to go to battle. And this guy blows this shofar. Shofar, so good. And so he brought them together to worship before the battle. 
Then the conclusion of the seventh circuit, the trumpets blew a long, sustained note, and all the people shouted. I don't know what they shouted. It doesn't tell us, but I know this. The walls came tumbling down. And by the way, archaeologists tell us they crumbled from the inside of the brick out. In other words, it couldn't have been any other explanation other than God himself. Let's move along real quick. <clears throat> the Lord fought the battle of Jericho. He was the victor. And he says, go to the, to the victor goes the spoils. And God told them explicitly, don't touch my stuff. But we're not talking about a city that was conquered 3,300 years ago. We're talking about my Jericho and your Jericho. The Bible teaches the possibility exists that there are personal strongholds in your life and my life. And those strongholds within our lives impede our fortified cities and they impede our spiritual progress. Let me ask you something. I remember a guy asking this one time. I was at a men's conference 20 years ago. I'll never forget this. It stayed with me all these years. He asked, guys, what is your one favorite sin? And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm a pastor. I don't have favorite sins until I started thinking about it. You know how you can tell what your favorite sin is? It's the one you ask forgiveness over and over and over again for. That's your favorite. Get rid of it. Then you'll have another favorite come up. Just, it just stays with you. But listen to what he just said to us. Strongholds in our own lives is what this story is really about to us. Now, it was a real incident to them. They, it really happened back in 3,300 years ago. But to us, it's a, a spiritual lesson we can learn. Your life is occupied by territory. It belongs to Jesus. But the enemy, Satan, is always on the attack. If you have a weakness, which we all do, he will try to exploit it. He'll try to build a fortress in that weakness, a stronghold, and use it as his base of operations to thwart your spiritual growth. In my, I'm not making this up. In fact, this is in the Bible. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Here it is in the Bible right here in front of us. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of God. Isn't that neat? Every one of us have those strongholds, folks, and we allow them to come into your life. And last, your spiritual progress is halted until you destroy the enemy's fortress inside your life. Temptation and strongholds operate within us in the realm of our mind, which is what the Bible often calls your heart, what we think. As a person thinks in his heart, so he is, we're told. You don't win the battle by not thinking about the wrong thing. You win the battle by quit thinking it and change that thought. In other words, you don't have to concentrate on not thinking about the bad stuff. 
Because when you try not to think about bad stuff, that's when you're going to think about bad stuff. Are you confused yet? Well, let me make it simple. Your mind can only grasp one image at a time. Let's perform a little experiment. I've never done this on Sunday, so we're going to use you as guinea pigs. Let me borrow your mind for just a moment. If you're not using it right now, <laughs> and I know who some of you aren't, but that's another story. I want to show you that you have the power to project any image you choose on the screen of your consciousness. For instance, close your eyes for just a moment. Really, close your eyes with me. I'm going to suggest an image and see if you can project it up in your mind. You can picture that image. Ready? Imagine a chocolate sundae with ice cream and a big old cherry on top. Hey, some of y'all got too much of a satisfied look. Don't don't go. <laughs> Just, I mean, now, let's do the second part of it. Now I want you to imagine, close your eyes and imagine, a big old ugly alligator. Now do them both at the same time. Can't do it. Unless you put the ice cream cone on the alligator's nose or something. I don't know. You can either imagine a Sunday or a crocodile or an alligator, but you can't imagine both simultaneously. Oh, you can imagine an alligator eating a chocolate Sunday, and then you might have a split screen, but you can only focus on one image of a time, at a time. How do you do it? How do we do that? How do we, God, you have the God-given power to bring your thought captive to Jesus. How do you do it? By thinking about the right things. That's why the Bible says in Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brother, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You know what he's telling us? Get the stinking thinking out of your head and start thinking about the things of God. And let's close real quick here. Those eight words describe the person of Jesus. He is true. He is noble. He is just. He is pure. He is lovely. He is of good report. He is of virtue. He is praiseworthy. So see, when you think on those eight things, you can keep all the other thoughts out of your mind. So when those wicked thoughts try to take your mind, just take your thoughts captive and project an image of Jesus. That's what Paul told us to do in Philippians 4.8. And once you demolish those three strongholds, don't allow Satan a place to rebuild another part of your mind. And let me give you the conclusion. I read this story of the day, and it's told as a true story. I cannot confirm it. I don't know. It's an interesting story that comes out of Haiti. A certain wicked man was selling his house for $2,000. A man wanted to buy it but couldn't afford the full price. The seller offered to sell, to it, sell it to the buyer at half price with only one stipulation, that the seller would retain ownership of a large nail protruding over the front door. The buyer agreed and his family moved in. About a month later, the original owner, uh, original seller, wanted to buy the house back for five, $500. But, of course, the, owner, the new owner refused to sell. 
So the wicked man went out and found the dead carcass, a carcass of a dead dog and hung it from that nail over the door of that house. Soon the stench of the dead dog made the house unlivable, and the occupant sold the house back to the owner for $500. The moral of the story is, if we leave the devil just one small peg in our life, he'll hang his rotting meat on it. Does the devil have a nail in your life? Has he built any strongholds in your life? Are there any walls and barriers to spiritual growth that need to come down in your life? Remember, just as the walls of Jericho came tumbling down through Jesus Christ, you have divine power to demolish strongholds by bringing every thought active to Jesus. When you start facing temptation, when you start finding, seeing your temper get out of control, just flash that image of Jesus up. Let me read you those qualities one more time. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there is any virtue and if, any, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Let me close by asking you this. Jesus Christ, you do have divine power to demolish those strongholds by bringing every thought into captivity, if you will, of obedience to Christ so that you can one day look back in the eye of the old devil himself and in the name of Jesus Christ you can say, Mr. Lucifer, tear that wall down. Let's stand together this morning. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this time you've given us. And as we come to close this service, Lord, this is your invitation. Lord, as we stand just a moment to, Lord, we're not even going to have any singing today, just music. Judy, play some just just as I am or something. We're not even going to sing this morning. But this is an invitation for each and every one of us. Maybe God's speaking to you. Maybe you need to bow at these steps here at the front. Maybe you need to just turn around the seat where you're at. We don't care. It doesn't matter. There's nothing holy about this platform. But maybe we just need to get and do business with God. God, tear the strongholds down in my life. Lord, let me see you in my life. Lord, let my prayer life be like Moses. Lord, let my willingness to go forward like Joshua. Whatever it is. Today, let that become. There may be somebody here that does not know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior. That's the greatest decision you'll ever make as we begin this new year. Whatever the need is, you may be looking for a church home. Whatever it is, this invitation is for you. We're not going to try to talk you into anything. Our deacons are on the side of the building. They'll be glad to talk to you. You can just bow out these steps, whatever you want to do. Nobody's going to say anything to you unless you desire it. Go with us this time, dear God, as we have this invitation to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.